0: Well, good evening. It's great to be back with you guys after a week off for Labor Day. Hopefully you've had a good first two weeks of school or three weeks for some of you or two and a half for others of you in the room. I know it's been kind of a crazy start of the school year, but we're so excited to have you here again with us tonight. And we're kicking off a brand new series tonight called The Search. And uh, The Search is a really broad name for, for us to um, cover five major questions that I really believe um, they're questions that everybody needs to have an answer to. And some of these questions are maybe not questions that you've thought about before as we go on throughout this series. But as I've been in college ministry over the years and I've been around college students for a while now, I feel like these are really important questions for you to have answers to. And they're they're questions that um, not only would you just have answers to, like we're going to not just talk about in the next few weeks, but we're going to come back to over and over again throughout your college experience because we want you to have convictions about these things and we want the, the truth to be reinforced in your life. And so tonight we're starting with this question, who is God? But, but next week we're going to get in the, the question of who are you? or who am I? But it's who are you? Chris Kim's going to be here, by the way, if you're here this summer. He's an incredible communicator, and he's going to be back with us next week. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, be dealing with why am I here? So who is God? Who are you? Why am I here? And then why the church, which is a really, really big question. And uh, you got to figure out an answer to that. Like, why should you be involved in the church? What's the deal with the church? Why does it exist? And then finally, what is God doing in the world? And I don't know if you know this or not, but God is active all over the world doing incredible things. And we want to tell you about some of those things. And we want to uh, hopefully give you the opportunity to go be involved in some things that God is doing around the world. So that's going to be the series, and uh, it's going to be incredible. Tonight's just the kickoff. And I promise you this, it's only going to get better from here. All right? So tonight we begin with this question, who is God? And the way we're going to answer this question is um, we're going to dive into this uh, text in the book of Colossians. And um, it's uh, Colossians, by the way, is this letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. And just I'm going to give you some context here. But anyway, I think we have an actual picture of the Apostle Paul, just because I, I think you need to see that. But this is the Apostle Paul right here. This is some rendering of the Apostle Paul. And he has a sword with him. And I don't know why he has a sword with him. Or that could be considered a cane, but it actually is a sword. And, uh, but that's just uh, 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 some artist's rendition of who he thinks Paul looked like. And I imagine he probably had a great beard like that, which is really, really cool. It would be awesome to be able to grow a beard like that. And um, anyway, but here's the thing about the letter to, to uh, the church in Colossae is we don't know if Paul actually visited the church there, okay? What we do know is that uh, when Paul was in this other town called Ephesus, he actually led a guy named Epaphras to Christ. And so we have actually a picture of Epaphras here, a rendering of him. And so talking about a beard. This is a, a great beard. And this is Epaphras. And for some reason, he has a sword as well in his on his bed. And I don't really understand what the sword is because that is not the way like Christians acted in that day and time, but apparently that was significant. Maybe they did. I don't know. Uh, maybe you know more about that. Maybe I should go to our scholar in the back, Matt Hotho. He can tell me all about the, the, the sword. I'm not really sure what is the deal with The sword, but there's a sword in the picture. But that's Epaphras. Okay, and what is significant about Epaphras and the church and Colossae is that Epaphras started it. And what happened was there were some issues in the church at Colossae. So he went and visited Paul in Rome and he told him what was going on in the church. And Paul wrote this letter to the church to address these issues. Okay, and some of the issues, I can't get into all the issues tonight, but some of the issues were just simple rule keeping. There was like this like if you were going to follow God you had to follow the rules but there were certain rules that they were really really like adamant about and and some people were stirring up teachings about like you have to like eat the certain things you have to drink certain things like don't drink these things but do drink these things and participate in these festivals so that was something that was going on there there was some angel worship going on there not really sure what all that was about but people in that community were worshiping angels and there were people that were like associated with the church and so they're worshiping angels. And so, I'm, you know, that's kind of crazy. And then there was another group of people that said, if you really want to know God like we know God, then you have to have this special experience with him. You have to have like an experience that's like, like, that allows you that, to see God in a way that we see God because you haven't experienced God like we know God. They were called the Gnostics. And that word Gnostics means knowledge, and, and they just said that they had some secret knowledge into knowing God. And then there was others that, that were kind of like, hey, Christ is good, but he's not like the best. He's not, he's not like equal to God. And those were some issues that was going on in the church at Colossae. So Paul responds to this, as Paul was great at doing, with a letter. And we're going to pick up that letter tonight to answer this question, Who is God? And it begins in verse 15 of chapter 1, and we're just going to dive in and go through this uh, entire um, passage. So he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so Paul begins, and he says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this word image is really significant because he says he's the image of the invisible God. And so what the word image, it actually translates icon. The actual Greek word is icon. And it's like he is the icon of the invisible God. And the significance of that is that no one had an image of God before this moment. In fact, with the exception of Moses, who kind of caught a glimpse of God, and maybe Adam and Eve in the garden, no one had really seen God before. And so the invisible became visible. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, meaning that He, whoever he is, was before all creation. And that should cause you right now to ask some questions. Like, what? Like, wait a minute. Like, I think, I remember, like, Jesus was, like, born, like, around 4 B.C. So how was he the firstborn over all creation? But he is the icon of the invisible God. And I don't know what you think of when you think of icons, and I don't know what your icon of God is, but w- there's some great icons. We live in a culture that's filled with icons. Um, just to help you out, you can play along here. And um, so uh, we're going to put up an icon here. Um, this is uh, Apple. You recognize that. And what do you think of when you see that icon right there? So uh, Somebody tell me uh, out loud. This, this is... So sheer awesomeness is what I got in the first row. Sheer awesomeness. How many of you think that's sheer awesomeness? Just a show of hands. Sheer awesomeness. How many of you are like, eh, no, no. Overrated, overrated. That that is amazing. So okay. But here, when you see this, do you think, man, a lot of you think sheer awesomeness or cool. Or a lot of people think creative because people who are creative—not not offense to anybody who's like, ah, but, you know, I'm with Galaxy, Samsung rules or whatever—but, but you know, they stole all their stuff by the way. But anyway, um, so, uh, but it means cool, creative. It's easy to use. I mean, I, I um, was able to pass on to my mother an old iBook of mine. It was outdated, but she loves it. I mean, she just thinks it's the easiest computer in the world. She called me last week and was like, you're not going to believe this. They upgraded something on the computer because it, it needed to, to be upgraded, and I didn't even know about this. And it, it saved her from, like, having to replace the the trackpad on it. And she's like, this is incredible. Apple's the greatest, and my mom loves Apple, and she doesn't know how to even use the thing for the most part. But it's easy. It's easy to use. But others of you think, man, you see that, and you think, man, that's so expensive and not worth it. Some of you think that. But the, the icon brings up an image to you, and it's funny how that's changing over time. Um, another uh, image here that you, your icon, yeah. What, what do you think of when you see that right there? I got sheer awesomeness again from the front row, same guy, same guy, said sheer awes- awesomeness. Um, but, you know, what do you think of? I mean, you think of like active, athletes, like uh, who, uh, yeah, Tiger Woods, somebody said Tiger Woods. How about, um, how about uh, Michael Jordan? Anybody think of Michael Jordan? Jumpman 23? Jumpman 23? How about LeBron? You got any LeBron lovers in the house? LeBron, yeah? Any LeBron haters in the house? Golly, yeah. man. Y'all are a tough crowd. Tough crowd. <laughs> but you, when you see Nike, you think active, athletic. You think, man, I'm cool. Somebody told me they think sweatshops. I'm like, what? really they do that's that's the thought that they said I'm like okay I need to be more informed and more aware of what's going on in the world apparently some people think Oregon Ducks because they get the free uniforms new uniforms every game football game that's so unfair here's another one hometown favorite right here check it out how beautiful is that right there sheer awesomeness again from the front row Oh, he said not this time. Okay. No, that is sheer awesomeness because that's our hometown, Atlanta. For all of you listening on the podcast, that is a Coke bottle, by the way. And um, it doesn't even need a name on it. Really. I mean, that's an icon for you right there. And I don't know what you think about, but when you think about Coke, what do you think about? Santa. Somebody said it. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. I didn't know this, but apparently Coca-Cola is responsible for Santa Claus wearing red. He was not a Georgia fan. He just, Coca-Cola made it happen. And I, I, apparently that's true. I had no idea. I thought that there was something else to St. Nick, but apparently Coke branded Santa Claus. But what do you think about when you think of Coke? You think of like holidays When I was growing up, in my generation, there was a song that you sang with this at the holidays. And it was like, I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And I don't know the rest of it. I'm sorry. (laughs) But, you know, that's what you think of. I think of like... um, Braves games, I, I do. I just think of at the Braves games, I'm having a Coke. I'm going to get my designated driver, a little wristband. I don't know if you know about this, but you go to the left-hand side of the stadium, you sign up to be a designated driver, and they'll give you a wristband, and you get a free Coke that evening. You need to take advantage of that, poor college students. I'm trying to help you out, for crying out loud. And, um, but I think about having a Coke at the movies. Like if I'm really going to splurge and get popcorn, I'm, I'm not getting a popcorn and not getting Coke, you know? And have you ever gone to the movies and bought the other brand? I'm not even going to say it because they're not worthy to be mentioned. (laughs) You don't go to the movies and buy a something else. You buy a Coke. And you don't order, I would like a, you say, I'd like a Coke with that, you know? And it just has something. What's amazing about Coca-Cola is they want that icon to be known all over the world. And they're doing an incredible job at making their brand known. So if we were going to pick an icon or an image of God, what would you pick? What, would you, what do you think about when you think about the image of God? Do you think about an old man? Do you think about Morgan Freeman? <laughs> it would be okay if you thought about Morgan Freeman. He's pretty cool. I'm for him. But what do you think about when you think about the image of God? How about this image right here? I'm getting no, by the way, from some of the people in the audience, which I totally understand. But this is Hollywood's best image that they kind of came up with, according to Mel Gibson. (laughs) And uh, yes, that is not the exact representation of the image of God. But that is an image of representing God, and that is Jesus right there. How about this image right here? And again, that's Hollywood's depiction of Christ on the cross. And I don't know if it does it justice. I'll leave it up there. I don't know if it does it justice. It could have been worse than that. But it's the image of the invisible God and what the invisible God did for you and I to have a relationship with him. You can take it down. And as gruesome and as gross as that icon is and as that image is, it should give you incredible hope today. Because that very image, whether it was the exact representation or not even close to the exact representation, it happened. And the reason it happened was so that you and I and all the people in the world could have a relationship with their heavenly father. And that should give you incredible hope tonight. But there's so much more in this passage that tells us about God. And it's verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created By him, or through him, and for him. By him, all things were created. Jesus is the initiator of all creation. All of heaven and earth. All created by him and for him. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If he is the creator, if Jesus, this is the word of God, if Jesus is the creator, He cannot, therefore, be created. And I want you to think about that for a moment because I think if you're a believer in the room tonight, maybe you grew up with this mentality or this thought process that, okay, so Adam and Eve were created by God and then they were imperfect. Harmony with God, and then we were in paradise, and then sin happened, and sin came into the world, and God was like, uh oh, what should I do? And so I must come up with a plan. And and it could be it could be in your thought process that Jesus was like, plan B. And I just want you to realize tonight. The truth of this passage, the truth that Paul is getting at to the church in Colossae, and the truth for you and I today, is that Jesus Christ wasn't created. That Jesus Christ existed from the very beginning. And that should cause you to think differently about who God is and how powerful Jesus is. And that's what it means when when, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he is Emmanuel, God, with us. That's incredible. And we were created through him and for him. And this gives us even greater hope today because of the cross and the things that we just looked at. Because, see, your life is the handiwork of God. Because you were created through Him and you were created for Him. It, it means that you have value and purpose and meaning and significance. It means that you, your very life, your life is somebody. You're not insignificant. And we're going to talk about that next week. That your life has one aim, one goal. And we're going to talk that in two weeks. Talk about that in two weeks from now. To be for to please, to honor, to reflect, to glorify the one who made you, that you exist for God. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is before all things in time. If your head is spinning right now, I understand that. Because God somehow can move outside of time and space. I can't explain that. I'm just being honest. I know I went to grad school. I can't explain it. But that's how powerful God is. And Jesus existed before time existed. If you have questions, come ask me afterwards. I'll tell you, I don't have the answers, but that's pretty fascinating to me because He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the beginning. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Jesus came first and still comes first. Everything started with Jesus. Nothing came into existence before him. He supersedes everything. And Jesus holds everything together. Thus, he is not detached. He's not uninvolved that he is actually holding creation, all things in place right now. One of the commentators said it this way, God is the glue that holds all things together. There's two reasons why verse 17 is so important. And I hope you get this tonight. The first is that I am not first in anything, but have been preceded by Jesus in everything. I am not first in anything, but have been preceded In everything by Jesus. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's common sense. Like, yeah, that makes sense that Jesus existed before me and he precedes me in everything. But think about this. Before you put your faith in Christ, what was first in your life? Was God first in your life? Or were you first in your life? And even as a follower of him today, what's first? Because Jesus precedes everything. But do you allow him to precede everything? Do you honor him in that way? Do you acknowledge that he is before you? The second thing that you need to know from verse 17 is I don't have to hold it all together because Jesus is holding all things together. And that should be a relief to everyone in the room tonight. Especially if your world is falling apart. Some of you are coming in here and you've got some serious stuff going on in your life. You've got serious family issues. You've got serious financial problems within your family. And it feels like the entire world and your world is falling apart. And whether you know Jesus or not, I'm telling you the truth tonight. Is that Jesus is holding everything together. And he knows exactly where you are. He's not surprised by it. He understands it. And he's right there with you in it. And you might think he's so far away, but he's not detached. Because Jesus is holding all things together. Now, this is significant because the implication here, sometimes people want to say, is that things don't break. Because Jesus is holding all things together, and I just want to say that's not what this is saying here. Things fall apart all the time. Things break all the time, and and I'll just go out on a limb here and just to kind of get on a little rabbit trail here. But if anybody tells you, "Hey, follow Jesus because life is going to get better if you follow Jesus," and I'm guilty of saying this as well, but that is not a guarantee. That is not a guarantee. If anybody tells you, hey, follow Jesus and your life is going to be materially blessed if you follow him, that is not true. Because Jesus himself, very, his very own words said, in this world, you will have trouble. John 16, In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And this is what I want you to get from this truth, is that, no, life doesn't get better But Jesus is greater than any trouble that you will face in life. And so therefore, if you want to say, yeah, life is better with Jesus, yes, that is true. Because he's greater than the trouble that I'm going to receive or experience in this life. That's the reality. But there's no promise from God that you're not going to have trouble because we're going to have trouble We're going to have trouble in this world. But Jesus is greater than trouble. And he's holding everything, all things together. Even when it seems like it's falling apart. It should give you great hope tonight. If you're here tonight and your world is falling apart. And there's some crap going on. And it is just going all over the place right now. I'm telling you, Jesus is holding it all together. And it might not feel like it. It might not seem like it, but he is, because he is before all things, and in him, all things he holds together. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So we don't have time to go into all of this tonight, and we're going to talk about this in week four. And I really, really hope that you'll join us in week four, because we talk about the church. And Jesus is the head of the church. And by the way, that means that the head is perfect, by the way. And you're like, wow, the church doesn't seem perfect. Yes, the church is not perfect, because we got flawed people in it. But the head of it is perfect. And we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about our role in that and why this generation needs to embrace the church. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But just to recap here, because there's a huge part in, in verse 18 that I don't want us to miss. But just to go back through 15, 16, and 17 real quick. Jesus is the image of God. That means he's, uh, he's also a pre-creation. He was before creation. He's the maker of all things. He's first in everything. His sustaining power is holding everything together. He's the leader of the church, the beginning of the church. He's the first to conquer death. And you can be like, oh, I thought Lazarus conquered death. Yes, Lazarus conquered death, but it was because of Jesus that Lazarus conquered death. So the natural conclusion is Jesus should have the supremacy in everything. Everything. At this point, if you're just going through the verses right here in order, Jesus should have supremacy in everything. In fact, he does have supremacy in everything. That's not up for debate tonight. What's up for debate tonight is whether you're going to acknowledge that or not. And whether you're going to reorder your life around that truth. That Jesus is supreme in everything. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And this is, when, when I talked about the Gnostics, these teachers, they were, uh, you know, talking about this secret spiritual revelation that, or knowledge that they had experienced in that day and time in Colossae. And uh, this word, the fullness, is the same word that they were using. And so Paul uses this word, and he, he uses this word to describe the fullness in Greek. And he says, hey, all the fullness of God is in Jesus. And the significance of that is it's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus and you do this to get saved, or it's not Jesus and you do that for heaven. He's saying Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in Christ. Christ. I don't need anything else because Christ is enough for me. And Paul's just setting the record straight. The fullness of God is in Jesus. The fullness of God is in Jesus. And and that's why why, uh, Jesus could say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The fullness of God is in Jesus. All of God was resident in Jesus. It dwelt in Jesus And I can be confident that in Jesus I have have access to all of God. Nothing is withheld. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. And the truth here, it's so beautiful, is that God initiates reconciliation. Reconciliation. God, through Jesus, reconciled to himself all things. And the way he did it was he made peace through his blood. And the word peace actually um, translates to bind together. And that's a beautiful picture. Because, see, restoration or reconciliation just didn't get us to heaven because of Jesus, although it gets us to heaven. That's really, really good news. But because of Jesus' blood, we are bound together forever with Jesus, forever, for eternity. We are with Christ. God was happy to put all things back together with Him by making peace through the sacrificial death, through the blood. Of his son Jesus, Jesus is the connector or the reconciler of all things. That means that he He's the reconciler of you, bringing, him, bringing you back to him. The cross doesn't just get me into heaven, it binds me to God forever. God is the one who's doing the reconciling, not us. He initiates reconciliation and, accompli- and accomplishes the making of peace. we. Are the recipients of reconciliation. We are the recipients of reconciliation by faith. By faith, by the belief that we believe that Jesus is God and that his sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross paid for our sin. So, who is God? Who is God? Jesus is God, and Jesus is like no other. And if this is new news to you tonight, if you're here tonight and you've never heard this before, or you've never thought about the reality or the implications of it, my hope is that you'll put your faith in Jesus tonight. That's my hope for you tonight. And if you're not ready for that, I hope you'll come back, and you'll keep coming back and join us until you get to a place That you're like, okay, I believe that he is the son of God. But for others of you in the room tonight, the fact that Jesus is God, the answer to the question, Jesus is God, has significance for you too. Because when you come to the place where you acknowledge that Jesus is God, you're acknowledging that he is supreme in your life. That he is God of your life. And when you stop for a moment and you just pause to acknowledge and you put your faith in Christ and you say, God, you are God, and I am not, you're in control. That means that He's in control of your job, that He's the God of your job. It means that He's the God of your schooling. It means that He's the God of your relationships, He's the God of your conversations. And so when you're at the fraternity house and you're having conversations, God is God of those conversations. And you're acknowledging and you're aware of Him in those conversations. He is the God of your sex life. Meaning, you're acknowledging and honoring Him in the way that you carry that out. He is the God of your reputation. He is the God of your energy, your passions, your mission. He's the God of your money. And you acknowledge him by the way that you spend it. And when you come to a place where you say Jesus is God, it it causes you to reorder everything in your life. Because you're acknowledging That He is Lord. See, Jesus is God. It means that Jesus is unmatched. It means that Jesus is unique. There's no one else like Him. There's no other person like Him. There's no other God like Him. And there's tons of world religions out there. But there's nothing... That is as unique as Jesus Christ. And he is unrivaled. There's nothing that can compete with him. And Jesus Christ is worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your energies. Because Jesus Christ is the living God. He's alive today. And I hope that gives you hope tonight. I hope that gives you hope. And whether it's old news for you, I hope you have hope tonight. And that you're inspired. Because maybe there's some reordering that needs to be done in your life. And if you don't know him, I pray that you'll get to know him. Because he wants a relationship with you. That's why he came. And that's a beautiful thing.